Welcome to FRT episode 76. The adaptation with COVID has been the dominant story for much of the year and the prevalent theme in some of our recent episodes, also on our IIF webinars. Today we're going to acknowledge that, but try not to labour it, instead pivoting to our snapshot view of what comes next. I'm Brad Carr, still at home in the suburbs of Washington DC, as has been the case since I spoke to Chris Skinner back on episode 63, and as looks to be the case for the foreseeable future. I'm joined today across town by two of my colleagues, Conan French from our digital finance team and a regular on FRT, and Jonathan Fortune, economist in the IAF's Global Macroeconomics Department. And as well as collaborating with the IAF's digital team on issues such as digital currency research, Jonathan is a Bolivian who speaks Japanese amongst his many languages. He joined us on FRT in our Japanese language edition back in episode 44, and also in English on episode 18 during the IAF Future Leaders Tour of Silicon Valley in 2018. Conan and Jonathan, great to have you both with us. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Brad. Looking forward for the talk. It's interesting times, and the interesting times look set to continue. Uh, Jonathan, let's let's start with the economy, the recovery, hopefully, of the economy, uh, and seeing that in the context of the digital era. I want to start perhaps with the notion of what some have started to suggest might be a K-shaped recovery in the sense of the divergence, perhaps, between the haves and the have-nots in, in the different trajectories. I'll cite my countryman, Justin Wolfers, uh, an Australian at the University of Michigan, who I thought put out a, a very interesting piece recently about how the stock market is performing well, perhaps, because big companies are well-placed to absorb the impacts and reposition themselves in the COVID environment, whilst others, and in particular, some of the SMEs, are struggling. Just interested if we could start perhaps with your thoughts on that premise and, and where you see the recovery trajectory. Thank you, Brad. Definitely, yes. Uh, I, in, in, to a great extent, I completely agree with Justin in the sense that you have kind of a two different world type of um, setup regarding the recovery. On one hand, you're going to have the big corporate world, at least here in the US, that is getting benefited greatly by uh, the stimulus, the, the monetary stimulus that the Fed and other central banks elsewhere have been pumping into the economy, which is precisely the objective of, of what the policymakers wanted to do, to give enough liquidity in the markets to actually channel that into, into the corporate world. But on the other hand, definitely you have the, the SMEs and the local economies that are suffering way more, especially economies that uh, rely a lot on services rather than manufacturing, which is another trait, very important trait of this COVID-19 shock. In general, I think that you can see uh, the recovery in three different lenses. On, on one side, you have the, the levels, right? Like if you see any chart of GDP uh, or, or, or anything similar, employment or anything else, and you look at levels, it's, it's completely terrible, right? This is probably the worst uh, economic shock that we had at any point in the post-war period. However, if you see it in, in changes, if you take the first derivative of, of those levels, uh, you can see that we have a, a strong recovery, right? And that recovery is actually pretty rapid. In, in less than two months or less than three months, we have been able to actually recover quite a, a lot of ground from the deep bottom hole that we were uh, right right around March. But then if you take one more derivative of that, if you take the second derivative, the speed of the recovery through time is actually stalling quite a lot. And that's the biggest question right now, right? Like if we're going to be able to recover successfully to the to the point that we're going to be in the in the stage pre-COVID, or we're going to take a little bit more uh, kind of a J type of recovery uh, on actually getting back to where we were before. Uh, maybe that question is precisely what you're pointing out, the differences between 
uh, the big corporate world and, and, and maybe the financial system. And on the other hand, SMEs, the real economy uh, and, and services sector. There's a lot on the SME side that we want to talk further about, and we'll pick that up momentarily. I do also want to acknowledge the point that you make there, Jonathan, about the level of the stimulus and the support that governments have provided. And as you note, you know, there's the seems to be the capacity to maintain that for the moment. But a little later, we might pick up the issue of digital services taxation in terms of the sustainability of some of the, the government balance sheets in the future. Conan, I don't know if you want to, to jump in on this, but you know, we are seeing a bit of a rapid response both from the SMEs themselves, but also from financial institutions and fintech companies in trying to support them through this period. Yes, I think that we see in SMEs um, the real challenge of the, the stimulus and the liquidity that's been put into the market as a response to this health crisis. You know, until the health crisis is solved, the SMEs are going to be disproportionately impacted. And that's a, a, a sort of particularly compounding problem for the economy because as Olivier Kayat, um, commercial banking CEO Uni Credit pointed out in a recent podcast, the economies in, in Europe and much of the world are really reliant on employment and the economic activity as of, of SMEs where you know, in many markets, in some European markets, they're up to 90% of uh, employment. Um, the vast majority of, uh, of enterprises uh, by headcount. And so the fact that this sector was not as prepared as large technology platforms or major enterprises to deal with this rapid digital shift uh, and the disruption of the health crisis uh, means that until this health crisis is solved, um, we have a, a particularly acute problem with um, you know, this traditional driver of employment. And I think maybe that's why you see, uh, for instance, the Fed um, at uh, you know, the recent Jackson Hole uh, conference making their historic shift to really focus on employment and trying to find ways to reach those SMEs. Jonathan, how do you see the the retail sector? And you know, we see you know perhaps that Amazon, as one example, is is bigger and stronger than ever. Perhaps we we talked about on on previous FRC episodes about how Alibaba had really emerged through the two thousand and two to two thousand and four SARS crisis when overwhelmingly Chinese consumers then moved away from the in-person transactions and more to the, the e-commerce channel. Um, is it the, the death of bricks and mortar re, uh, retail? Is it the, the big guys like the Amazons getting stronger? Is it a resurgence of vehicles like eBay? How, how do you see it? Well, as any good economist would say, I think the best answer is it depends. But uh, <laughs> definitely, yes. Uh, we have been writing quite a lot on the on what we call the retail apocalypse, in the sense that the typical uh, big box stores uh, that actually have a lot of uh, space, that they they have a lot of associated costs on actually uh, the 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 real estate that they have to occupy, the logistics that they have to get to have showrooms, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are kind of uh, in an unfair position to actually cope against the new e-commerce type of, of retail that you see. And, and this is uh, important because uh, the costs uh, for each one of these two categories are completely different. And therefore, the, um, the benefit for the investor, the benefit for, for the shareholder at the end of the day is going to be higher on an e-commerce type of, of, of environment. That's precisely why you see Amazon and, and other things like Alibaba or Rakuten in Japan doing Quite quite well in this in this space, and and you see that the typical uh, big box stores not not doing so well. But uh, I, and this is a big big but here uh, in the sense that 
in local economies, especially in, in emerging markets, but also in, in, in very local economies where you don't have logistics enough to actually e-commerce uh, flourish in the in the same way as it does in, in the suburban areas of, of, of big cities or or also in in, in the, where you don't have the different payment uh, services on, on, on low income uh, strata of, of society where they don't have access to a credit card, for example, you still see that the the typical mom and pop type of shops uh, are are still useful and most importantly they're a, a big source of, of employment to the local economy. So yes, in the sense I would declare the, the retail apocalypse for the for the typical big box stores, but the importance of a retail sector in, in small economies, in local economies is still quite important and quite useful for employment purposes. I think it's a really important point you make about the logistics and uh, and it's something that perhaps here in the US we take for granted sometimes, uh, just the level of logistics and infrastructure that's in place to support the, the delivery economy um, that we've all rapidly switched to. And I think you, you also remind us there a bit about the, you know, when we talk about SMEs that have been reinventing themselves, um, it was striking to me, and I, I apologise to someone who may have heard me mention this on one of our webinars before, but you know, I look at some of our, our local coffee shops and craft breweries and the like around in, in my area, and when we immediately went into to lockdown in March, they tried to reinvent themselves and did so in fairly uh, agricultural kind of ways, whereas you looked at it again three or four weeks later, and they were all on Square or on Ritual or on Toast or on one of those you know, fintech payment provider vehicles, which you know, I think have become increasingly prevalent and probably uh, an increasing dependency uh, for a lot of SMEs. If we can pick up the point about digital identity, and Conan, this is one where you know, we've found that, that in pretty much every conversation through COVID, digital identity is is increasingly to the fore, and I think a, a really vital part of the, the digital economy that's accelerating. A lot of the work we're doing at the IAF together with the Open ID Foundation has focused on the, the Open Digital Trust Initiative. We spoke about this on FRT a, a few weeks ago. Um, and whilst part of that will ultimately be about solving some of the financial crime challenges, I think it's the uh, the initial commercial value that is going to be the the entry point where this probably gets more more traction, and it's it's striking for those kind of transactions where in some ways the customer needs to show some eligibility, that it's not just is your creditworthiness good, but you know do you meet a residential or an age criteria or what, and as so much of the economy has suddenly switched away from uh, in person in person transaction in person identification. I think the, the digital ID uh, developments that we're seeing and where you know, banks like Santander have been very much at the forefront with what we're trying to do with the Open Digital Trust Initiative, I think this increasingly becomes a, a really important enabler for a lot of SMEs to be able to participate in this new environment in the economy. I wonder if you wanted to elaborate a little further on how you see the digital identity trends. Well, I, I think that this uh, crisis, as many people have observed, really accelerated things. So practices, human practices, consumer behavior is usually um, pretty slow and long to change, and the arc of change is quite long. And here you had the entire earth sort of shift its behavior patterns in a number of days and weeks. And I think that that dramatic change uh, really revealed how some of the lingering practices from the former world of, um, you know, remote uh, transactions being inherently risky, you know, placing a premium on in-person and paper credentials uh, was really shown to be uh, sort of out of step with uh, not only where the world already was, but but certainly how it was going to deal um, with this new uh, digital environment and, and some of the um, health requirements. 
So, you know, I think that we've just taken a, a, a fast forward uh, button over the past couple of months. And um, it's also sort of revealed, I think, how many different actors within the economy have a role to play, that it's not just sort of one single golden source uh, from a government, although that's very important, but that you can have a really robust set of, of actors um, that are participating in this activity of authenticating, approving um, transactions, preventing fraud. And so I think it's uh, really sharpened the focus on, uh, on a critical area for the efficiency and effectiveness of transactions going forward. If I may add a little bit to, to the thought and going in the same direction that Conan is, is going, I think what's most important also, not only in the area of digital identity, but it's like the one solution fits most of everything, fits all uh, for the SMEs, right? Like we have to we have to consider that SMEs don't have the same amount of uh, money or, or amount of time than a big corporation to actually develop in-house solutions. That's why we have seen the... the the emergence of, of many uh, one model fits all, like one big solution type of things such as plate or things like that to actually um, uh, help the, the digital identity sector for, for the fact of SMEs. In this sense, it's, it's very important to see how SMEs are actually starting to access these, these concepts, to access these, these tools. Uh, the big financial institutions are actually going to give you a big hand on actually making it available, but there's a whole emerging space of, of companies and startups that actually are linking the efforts of financial institutions with SMEs to make it very easy to access. There was a fantastic tweet from uh, Chris Brummer, a professor at Georgetown Law, who we'll hear from in the IF Digital Interchange. He made a great observation last month about you know, the, the fundamental challenge in, I think he was framing it in fintech, but I think it's wider and I think it applies a lot to the SMEs that you're, you're touching on there, Jonathan is this conundrum of how, on one hand, you need to be able to achieve the efficiencies that can only come at scale, whilst at the same time trying to uh, ensure that you deliver the personalization and customization that people expect. And I think for, for a lot of SMEs, it, it is very much that challenge of, of how can I deliver at a price point and an efficiency that is comparable to what the bigger guys can do with their scale advantage. And, and to the extent that SMEs perhaps historically have had the advantage of being able to tailor and customise, how can you maintain that when perhaps the big guys in a data-enabled economy are able to do that just as effectively or, or more enabled by big data? How do you maintain your edge in that customization or personalization, and at the same time manage to achieve the scale-like efficiencies? I completely agree. And, and precisely from there, you, you, you have the, the big... Uh... The new paradigm that everything is is on the cloud now, and I know that we're going to touch a little bit on that uh, later. But uh, if you're going to be able to to solve many of the issues of the typical SMEs of customization, but also of services on the cloud directly, this this can be a very promising and a very interesting era. Uh, you have a lot of uh, SaaS type of services and and uh, that are actually emerging and. And the fact that actually this reduces costs for the SMEs is a fundamental step to, to actually democratize uh, the e-commerce e uh, completely, right? Let's go to cloud in just a moment. But firstly, you might just pivot and talk about some of the significant market transactions that we've observed recently. Uh, and firstly, Conan, if I can get you to talk a little here about the, the cabbage sale to, to American Express, which you know, I think was probably striking coming in an environment where we know that some of uh, these firms have had 
challenges with their, their funding base and whether there's uh, speculation about consolidation in the fintech sector. But what was striking for you about this Cabbage transaction? Well, I think the year started off with Cabbage as a Unicorp valuation uh, fintech. It's out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, here in the U.S., and it really served a, a market need for the SME market again. And the rapid uh, disruption of the fall, both of their customer base in the SMEs, um, but also in their uh, funding in the in the capital markets, really caught them um, out. And in a matter of weeks, they went from you know unicorn valuation to uh, uh, sort of a, a quick sale of convenience to um, Amex. And I think it showed, as I said, both the disruption of their customer base that was heavily SMEs who may have had a, a, a banking account relationship with a large um, uh, you know, GSIP lender, but uh, couldn't uh, secure the type of credit uh, or the you know, speed of credit that they wanted. And this was one of the more innovative companies that was really using advanced analytics, machine learning, and alternative data sources for uh, you know, very innovative lending to the SME sector. And again, you know, hit a perfect uh, headwind. Um, so I think going in to Amex, where um, they have a traditional uh, track record of working and serving uh, the entrepreneurs and the small businesses that they start is, is probably a good fit and a good fit for their innovative machine learning and technology. Um, but again, a very illustrative tale of what happened to the SME sector and how fast it happened. It was kind of an interesting intersection too of, of as you say, Cabbage having, I think, some great cutting edge technology, which is, is very well regarded and I'm sure was a big part of the attraction for Amex. At the same time as having a funding model that you know, was reliant on things like asset-backed security markets that uh, that suddenly dried up, it was in some ways some, some kind of shadows of, of 2008 in, in parts from a funding model perspective. So I think it's probably a transaction that makes a lot of sense in terms of, of how one problem is solved and one great strength is utilised. But we do see it a little in that context of where there has been you know, question marks over the fintech sector's funding this year. We've seen the uh, rapid response from the Singapore government, for instance, uh, very visibly and meaningfully supporting the sector. At the same time, there's there's perhaps other areas in the digital space where you know, capital raisings continue. And, and Jonathan, you, know, you were talking uh, recently about Ribbit Capital uh, as one example that perhaps if you, if you could touch on. Sure. And I think this is this is quite interesting because going back to our first point of, of actually the, the big liquidity because of the intervention of, of central banks, uh, there is a lot of precisely liquidity and money now for these startups or, or these initiatives to actually go and, and try to get a benefit of that. Well, uh, going in specific to Ribbit Capital, I think it's an example of this. Uh, if you remember, Ribbit Capital is one of the founding members of the Libra Association and they have a, a portfolio of $2.6 billion of cryptocurrency and blockchain ventures. Uh, the interesting thing now is that, uh, like a few weeks ago, they filled a prospectus with the SEC for an IPO of around $350 million uh, for an SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company. So it's quite interesting because the takeaway of this is, is, is twofold. First, that the SEC is, is actually open to, to the cryptocurrency space and, and to actually see ventures that actually try to get funding from, 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 the, from the market uh, through an, an IPO, uh, a type of company of this. But most importantly, uh, Ribbit, or, or at least the prospectus that they fill it in, they're calling it Ribbit Leap, uh, they don't have a, a business yet, but, but they're trying to find one to, to merge uh, 
merge to, to attach themselves to a, to, a, to, a, to a different company. But this is a leeway and this is this opens a door for for efficient public listings routes for a crypto business to to raise capital and, and, and benefit from this. So I think it's, it's quite interesting right now uh, for for the smaller crypto initiatives to actually benefit from from the market. Yeah, interesting times. Probably the, the other transaction I thought probably worth touching on here is is about Ant Financial's IPO. And uh, it was a, a really interesting point, I thought, that, that Martin Chaw's emperor of the Peterson Institute called out recently that uh, where Ant is such a, a big and dominant player, there's actually been relatively scant information about them uh, that's been out in the public domain in the past. And, uh, and obviously the prospectus has been a, a catalyst for changing some of that. Just if I can touch on a couple of the, the metrics that really leapt out at me. Uh, seven, 711 million Alipay users, um, that 500 million uh, authorised users, uh, authorised for credit uh, already in place uh, in their user base. Perhaps most interestingly, um, the way that Charles Ember described it was that Alipay is a, a cash cow, uh, as he put it, for banks uh, in China and that, that they've paid 47 billion remimbi in fees to get money out of Alipay wallets. Also, that 98% of the funding for Ant's loans has come from banks and other financial institutions, which almost sounds a little bit to me like PayPal. And, uh, you know, we know that PayPal have emerged as, as one of the, uh, I think, the top three lenders to the SME sector in the US. But lending in the sense of being the introducer or the facilitator and actually relying on, on bank balance sheets behind that in, in providing the funding. So I thought those were some interesting data points to take about Ant. And I thought also, interestingly, whilst there's no mention of the, the Chinese Communist Party in a governance context, there is at the same time a conspicuous phrase that appears in the prospectus that, and I quote, due to our large scale of business and close media attention, there can be no assurance that regulators will not initiate anti-monopoly investigations into specific business practices. And I think uh, you know, there's been further media commentary picking up on this point that perhaps this is opening the door to further investigations just where Ant has indeed become just so big and so dominant. But Conan, you know, this is a name that you look at and I know I've done a lot of previous research on in, in prior IF papers over the years looking at the, the Chinese ecosystem and, and Ant's dominance within it. You know, what stands out for you around this transaction or around this IPO and the, the details? As you mentioned, this uh, this IPO filing is a fascinating look under the hood of a business that's been pretty opaque uh, and difficult to get some some very strong data points on. And some of the things that stood out for me is that they're becoming much less re reliant on payments. That, of course, was a huge driver for the growth of the business. Um, but as a share of revenue, that's down to about 36% of their overall revenue, um, while revenue from things like credit, insurance, and investment platforms are um, up even just this last year from 56 to 63%. So that was uh, fascinating. Their transaction volumes um, the last 12 months saw $17 trillion in transactions. So that was another good snapshot. We've only had a few of those over the years. Um, so as you've said, uh, a great chance to see a little more detail under the hood of one of the, the global dominant uh, giants here. I also think it's interesting to see you know, some similar analogies to how the U.S. Congress is looking at um, the U.S. platform, digital platform companies and, and their role in competition in the marketplace. And uh, I think many people find it interesting that the Chinese um, officials and, and regulators are grappling with some of the same issues. And you see that uh, manifesting around um, this event as well. 
So one of the big emerging themes that I think we need to look at next is going to be the increasing US-China tensions uh, in the tech world. And Conan, you, you make an interesting point there that there are, are cases where maybe we're not that different and actually facing a lot of the, the uh, similarities of issues. Uh, but certainly, I think this is if we if we pivot now to talk a little bit more about what's next. You know, I think beyond the the issues around TikTok, uh, we're going to have a lot of further debate uh, and speculation around what's the future for uh, the intersection of Chinese and and Western tech. Uh, we had a great uh, a great point called out to us last year in our annual membership meeting by Yucca Grobler, the the first round CRO, that as you look across Africa, you've seen banks using Western big tech and uh, and telcos using Chinese big tech. And as we perhaps see an increased schism uh, in the tech world, uh, the interoperability issues that arise from that, I think are going to be only all the more critical. If we can pick out a few of the other issues of what's next, we've already talked a lot about digital identity, um, and I do just want to underscore that. But maybe if we go to cloud, um, which Jonathan raised, and, and Conan, I think it was striking that, that you know, where we've continued to work on the, the IF Deloitte uh, series, Realising the Digital Promise, and we've started having a number of interviews and focus groups, both with bankers and insurers and also with officials. And really, as we look at how those firms intersect with the external ecosystem, with their regulators, with their investors, with their partners, our conversations are gravitating a lot to this issue of cloud, aren't they? and the, the challenges of, of cloud ad adoption, some different perceptions as to the extent to which regulation is a barrier or, or not. Um, we've heard some, some quite divergent views around that. I saw this as a big issue, but I've actually been a little surprised just how front of mind this has clearly been for a lot of the people that we've spoken to so far. Well, I think the last couple of years have seen a settled consensus that cloud is an essential tool uh, for digital and business transformation of the economy. Um, but as that's settled, I think that, you know, if people dig into the details, uh, being able to use multiple clouds, hybrid clouds, uh, clouds that can comply with privacy and localization requirements, um, it's, it's just a much more complicated uh, picture. And bringing the mix um, of different standards and those rivalries that you mentioned between the U.S. and China, and I think the global picture for cloud it continues to be um, very complicated. So it's essential infrastructure. Uh, the last six months have shown just how essential it is to the continued uh, development of the global economy. Uh, but the details of how you manage different clouds and moving um, different activities uh, to the cloud while maintaining some of that governance um, that's essential for critical data uh, makes it much more complicated. Definitely, yes. And it has to, to deal, I think, it, with, with something that we were talking previously, right? Like the, the corporate cost structure or the or the cost of, of items sold, if you want, or services sold is something fundamental, especially for SMEs, where the margins are actually not very high. And uh, cloud technology brings this, this leeway, brings opens this door on actually reducing those costs greatly. Um, maybe a very oversimplified example, but Less than five years ago, you needed to set up a, a local server for your email, a local server for your accounting, and and buy uh, software for for managing all of that. Now, actually, any SME from the from 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 your home, you can actually set up your SME, and actually, you can have all of these services directly uh, through cloud services. And this impacts greatly, greatly in the in the corporate cost structure on, on, on SMEs and it makes it easier to actually access the market 
and, and makes it easier to actually uh, compete uh, cost-wise with, with other companies. And on top of that, I think it's very important also to, to realize that services on the cloud actually allow different geographies around the world to actually access these, these services. The way that actually SMEs are being established uh, across different different geographies. Of course, this has to go hand in hand with the with the policy making uh, side of it. How easy it is to set up an SME? How easy it is to access actually the market itself? But we see that actually the cloud services are are actually aiding a lot on first uh, reducing the cost of actual implementation of the of the company itself. But second, allowing SMEs in different geographies to actually have this accessibility. And this crisis just illustrates how getting those policies in place um, so that SMEs can equally access uh, a cloud is essential to having them really engaged in the global value chain of a, of a digital economy going forward. That's a good point because uh, remember, once again, like typically we, we, we look at EMs as, as commodity traders, as non-added value traders. But now with, with this revolution that it's taking place as we speak, uh, the the place on on the on the on the global supply chain of of these SMEs or of these companies in in different locales can actually be modified and and they can actually go up the supply chain. I completely agree. The other space where I'd emphasise cloud and perhaps earlier when we were talking about some of the e-commerce giants is the other big mega theme around the taxation of digital services. And we touched earlier on the issue of the sustainability of some of the fiscal initiatives which are helping to, to hold economies up at the moment. But uh, if you roll some of this forward, you, you do potentially have a scenario where if SMEs are, are struggling, and we hope that with a number of the initiatives we've talked about here that that can be mitigated, if SMEs are struggling and that, that more of the, uh, the profit, uh, profits in the world are being accumulated by uh, the big tech uh, e-commerce firms or indeed a greater reliance on some of those cloud providers, we do also have the issue that most of those firms are American or Chinese and that this is a very hot, uh, hot topic in Europe in particular. And so we see some of these digital services taxes uh, emerging as, uh, as proposals with debates at the levels of the OECD and the WTO, for instance. And I, I wonder if we're going to see a number of governments that um, see the erosion of their own domestic taxation base amongst their own corporate sector, that increasingly the desire to ensure that you can uh, in some way grab a share of the tax revenue accumulating from the activities of those big tech firms is, is perhaps going to become a growing theme, perhaps a more dependent theme. I think a bit of Andrew Yang's comments in, in the, uh, the universal basic income proposal that he had as part of his presidential campaign was something that he proposed would be funded by an additional tax on the major tech firms. So I think we see a, a very complex weaving of, of issues in the digital taxation space of, on one hand, the question of, of who does the taxing on a national basis, uh, on the, the second of, of what basis you're taxing and whether it is profits as it's traditionally been for corporate taxes or whether it's income or whether it's some other measure. And to some extent, the first of those may inform the, the second of those that national governments may make their tax proposals based on what they actually have some ability to levy. You also have a really interesting point that, that David Hardoon at the Union Bank of the Philippines has raised with us which is about data, and and is the is this ultimately going to lead to a, some sort of impetus to wanting to tax data in some way, 
And how do you do that when the value of data is so different for each party, depending on what item of data it is, what they can use it for, what ability they have to refine that data, what other data they are potentially putting that to, to get together with? There's not going to be a, an homogenous view, perhaps, on the value of data if that was to become a, a taxable item. A lot of really complex issues there that I think get, get weaved together. So perhaps to close, two final topics I'd like us to touch on. Uh, one is the, the ethical use of data, um, which I think weaves through some of what we've talked about. I think as we see the, the tech firms and the social media companies becoming you know, bigger and more prevalent in our lives and increasing dependence that we each individually have on them, as well as the linkages into finance. You know, one interesting theme, theme that we see emerging in finance is, is talk of the extent to which how data is used perhaps becomes a positive differentiator. And if you think of the Bank of England's Future of Finance report just a little over a year ago that Hugh Van Steenis led, um, in one of the really striking charts, I thought, in that was the, the point where when surveyed as to who they most trust for their personal data, uh, 86% of people said their bank, as opposed to the other 14 that were scattered across a range of different fields of their, their energy retailer, their social media company, uh, and others. So there is perhaps an opportunity there for firms that have a strong track record in protecting and securing data if they're able to transparently demonstrate to to, uh, to their customers uh, how they protect that and how they ensure that it is used in an ethical way. I think this is a really big theme that, that uh, to, to continue with. And at the IF, we have been developing a, an ethical charter for the, the use of data um, at the direction of our board of directors. And the other thing I wanted to touch on to finish is the, if we think a bit about the future of money and the money redesign series that we've been doing, and our second paper has focused on you know, looking perhaps at the intersection of stable coins with their application in emerging markets. Uh, and thinking a bit here where, you know, I don't mean to be centric to, to Libra as just one initiative, but where things have perhaps evolved from their original proposal to now having single, single currency coins in some of the major markets, but still having the the one coin across uh, used really across emerging markets and that being stabilised or pegged against major market currencies throws up a lot of the same issues. And Jonathan, if I can get your views here, you know, I, we kind of end up looking here a bit at uh, a proposition that perhaps has, has two very different sides of the same coin, that, that on one hand, for an individual or for a small business in an emerging market who might be worried about the volatility of their domestic fiat, some of the experiences that we've observed over the years in Venezuela and Argentina and Indonesia and Turkey, among others. Um, perhaps a vehicle like this has some great social value in democratising hedging for those people and giving them access to a, a hedging tool that they haven't had previously. But on the other hand, there can be some possible uh, concerning repercussions for financial stability and for monetary policy. Thinking in terms of... of uh, you know, the, the risk of an erosion of the, the funding base that the banks that are doing the lending in the local economy rely on. I wonder if I can get you to just to elaborate a little bit on those. Sure. I think this narrative that you're describing is pretty much applied to many of the, of the topics that we've been touching up on today, right? On one side, you're going to have definitely the, the positive side, if you want, the, the opportunity, the promise that all these new technologies actually can, can mean to, to either an SME or, or, a, or an endpoint customer or a holder of a, 
of a cryptocurrency or or anything like that. It it flattens up the it flattens the the, the market. It flattens the the earth, right? Like in in the sense that now you can access any locale and you can access any any investing uh, opportunity across the world through these these mechanisms. Uh, on the other hand, definitely it, it touches in in the same in the same idea that you were talking about taxation for cloud services and and, and, and related uh, online services, but in 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 this sense also for for the for the case of the usage of cryptocurrencies and stable coins in in EMs, it's it's something very similar, right? The sense that uh, local central banks, especially in emerging economies, which don't have uh, the same policy tools and the same strength as a G3 central bank are somehow fear, fearful of, of actually what could be the potential consequences on on introducing a stable coin that is widespread uh, by 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 end endpoint consumers. Uh, for example, uh, right now not many EM EM uh, markets actually have a clear, truly uh, autonomous monetary policy. Either because they're semi-packed or packed to, to to another currency, or maybe because they're just too small economies to actually exercise a, 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 an authentic uh, monetary policy. Uh, the introduction of actual and stablecoin would actually add one more rock to that path, right? In the sense that uh, you wouldn't be sure that actually the transmission of your monetary policy would be efficient to the whole market if half of the market is holding a stable coin and they can liquefy it. Uh, the moment that they see convenient independently of the monetary policy that you are introducing. Uh, but then again, uh, on the other hand, you have this positive thing that the, the stable coins would actually be a leeway to actually hedge for many different risks uh, across across the board. Uh, and, and yes, it's true. Like we have already seen it in, in Turkey, in Venezuela, in, 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 in different places where the, the stress in, in, the, in the economic sector is actually pretty, pretty high. And the introduction of stablecoin only promises to actually do that even more, to democratize more that that hedging opportunity. But going back to your original question, definitely this is this is a two-sided coin that uh, we hope that uh, that it can be solved, and then policymakers as well as the private sector can can balance out and and at the end bring better opportunities to the to the end consumer, but also benefits to to EMs. The challenge on that front is that these philosophical and practical questions of how to how to deal with this um, were imagined, you know, sort of at a slower pace of change as people looked at a five to ten year transition and in the fourth industrial revolution here with automation and AI and machine learning. But if it turns out this all happened over a month last quarter, two quarters ago, and we've just fast forwarded. Um, the the impetus to move quickly will be very strong, and the likelihood of getting good policy in place will be a real challenge. So one of many reasons why we're committing uh, efforts in this area. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Conan. I think we've we've covered a lot of ground, but that's probably just a representation that when we try and do a little bit of a look ahead to what's next, we're in a time where there's a lot there to talk about. Uh, and if I can just perhaps recap on a few of the things that I think stand out from our conversation you know, I like the the way that you framed the the retail apocalypse uh, there, Jonathan, but particularly the way that you you stressed that the the emphasis of that you know, being for some of the typical big box stores, uh, and indeed when we talk there about how to help SMEs and the the critical role that they have in the economy, um, and where Conan was was referencing uh, Olivier from Unicredit, 
you know, there's there's a lot a lot of activity, a lot of potential for specific initiatives we see, whether it's in the payment space, whether it's in digital identity, around data management as a means of helping to helping to deal with that conundrum of how you improve efficiency uh, in lieu of scale, whilst at the same time preserving that ability to personalise. Where cloud supports that and where cloud perhaps helps to democratise access for SMEs across the world, reducing some of the costs of implementation and enabling their access to new technologies that they might not otherwise be able to reach. And I think we see a lot in the, the space of the, the questions on the sustainability of government balance sheets, where that may be a driving force in some of the issues around digital taxation policy. But I think that also intersects with some of the cross-border variances, um, the intersection with geopolitics as well, what we see in data localization, and also what we see in some of the US-China tensions and the interoperability of global technology. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Conan. Great discussion and, and a lot to look ahead to. Coming up on FRT, we'll also look at the Australian consumer data right, which has perhaps emerged as a prototype in the effort to go beyond mere open banking and more into a space of a broader open data ecosystem. Lawrence White, the IAF's Asia-Pacific representative, is currently in lockdown in Melbourne, uh, and he's going to pick this theme up with some of the Australian experts. We'll also pick up a couple of the major themes that we've touched on here, the US-China attentions, the initiatives in taxation. We'll also explore the connectivity between some of the new payments initiatives around the world. Uh, we're going to pick up on some great illustrations that were given on our recent webinars, firstly by Terry Angelos of Visa and secondly by Jesse McWaters of MasterCard, where those firms have managed to, to help to connect some of the new cutting edge initiatives that have happened, uh, that have emerged in certain domestic markets. And lastly, been promising this a while, I know, but we are going to get to, to picking up the portability between clouds, noting the increased criticality of cloud that we've talked about here, and also which Google Cloud's Orku Road talked about recently on our last episode, episode 75. So please join us for all of those. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for being with us on FRT. 